0: The Old Pilots playing Tales Friedrich Karl von König Wurthausen and the Crazy Baron Fritz as Friedrich Karl, Richard Paul, August, Freiherr, König von und zu Warthausen was probably known to his friends, climbed out of his little aircraft and stretched his legs. It had been a long flight, but he had at last reached his destination, Bushir, on the eastern side of the Persian Gulf. Across the rough dirt of the airfield where he landed, he could see a big monoplane glinting in the sun. It was a grand sight to find another German aircraft there, a Junkers W33 with its distinctive corrugated metal skin and stylish enclosed cockpit. A far cry from his own flimsy machine. The German pilots greeted each other and marvelled how, in 1928, they should have met in such a remote place, some 3,300 miles, 5,300 kilometres from the fatherland. It's doubtful that the Junkers pilot knew much about the young 22 year old airman with his flimsy little aircraft. But the gaunt and weathered Baron was well known to von Kunig Wothausen This was the crazy Baron, as the Americans had dubbed him, more formally known as Ehrenfried Günther Freiherr von Hünefeld. Von Hünefeld's life hadn't been easy, but he'd certainly lived it to the full. He grew up in East Prussia, and his childhood had been marked by several serious illnesses which left him blind in his left eye and near-sighted in his right, a condition which he corrected with a monocle. After studying philosophy and literature at Berlin University, he tried to join the German Air Service as a volunteer to fly and fight in the First World War, but he was rejected because of his poor health. That didn't stop him, however. He was accepted as a motorcyclist and he served at the front until he was badly wounded in both legs. After several operations, he was left with one leg shorter than the other, was unable to remain in military service. He became a diplomat and then served as a spokesman for the Neude Deutsche Lloyd Shipping Company. Von Hunefeld never lost his interest in aviation and he was inspired by a generation of groundbreaking pilots such as Old and Brown who completed the first non-stop transatlantic flight. Burden Bennett, who had flown over the North Pole, and Charles Lindbergh, who had crossed the Atlantic solo. The mighty first flights were fast being conquered, so Hunefeld set his sights on one of the few remaining. Crossing the Atlantic west to east had been the chosen direction, because of the prevailing winds that would aid flights in that way. As yet, nobody had succeeded in flying a crossing against the wind from east to west, even though it had been nearly a decade since the first successful crossing in the favoured direction. In 1927, Hunefeld bought two Junkers W33s from the Junkers Company in Dessau and named them after Norddeutscher Lloyd's two flagships, the SS Bremen, and the SS Europa. His ambitious flight was being supported by two key personnel, Hermann Kohl, a World War I pilot and now head of the night-flying department of Deutsche Lufthansa, and Hugo Junkers himself, the chief designer and owner of Junkers' aircraft works. The W33 was a fine aircraft for the time, Made from duraluminium, it was a low-winged cantilever monoplane, something of a departure from the contemporary biplanes being produced in the UK and the US. Early ones had an open cockpit, but Hunefeld's featured a comfortable enclosed space for the pilots. Powered by a single Junkers L5 six-cylinder water-cooled inline piston engine producing 306 horsepower, it could cruise along at over 90 miles an hour, and modified versions would set many records, such as an endurance flight of over 52 hours and a height record of nearly 42,000 feet. With the renowned aviator Herman Cole, the Baron set off a Donnell in Ireland in 1928. There they met James Fitzmaurice of the Irish Air Corps, who was to become their third crew member, and whose aid would be invaluable. Although aviation met forecasting was in its infancy, it had grown considerably in the nine years since Alcock and Brown made their first flight. The British Met Office now received twice daily observations from 75 North American stations, plus a dozen or so from ships making the Atlantic crossing. They were able to provide the pilots with winds at the surface and 2,000 feet, general weather, low cloud details, visibility and sea state. Having arrived in Ireland in March, the Bremen barely turned a wheel for a couple of weeks while storms and heavy rain beat down on its metal wings, and even when the rain eased, the sodden airfield took a while to dry out. The weather on the other side was being fairly dramatic as well. Whilst New York was suffering a minor heat wave of 27 degrees centigrade, which is 80 Fahrenheit, there were heavy snowstorms over the central states. Fitzmaurice was keeping in close touch with a Captain Entwistle, a Met officer at the Air Ministry, and eventually it was decided that conditions were suitable for the attempted flight. The fuel tanks were topped off and the wings coated in paraffin wax in an attempt to stop ice forming on them. A 6pm start was delayed so that they could receive a final evening forecast from London. It showed a mid-Atlantic wind of 10 miles an hour from the surface to 5,000 feet in a south and east direction, but the further west he went, the wind shifted to west and west-northwest, 30 to 35 miles an hour at 2,000 feet. Von Hunefeld and his crew discussed their options. The shorter Great Circle route to St John's in Newfoundland had better weather, but it was 300 miles north of the main shipping lines, which was the safer option should they come down in the ocean. However, that route was influenced by a depression that would result in stronger headwinds and poor weather. After a final conference at midnight, the decision was made. They would take the northerly route. Fitzmaurice grabbed a few hours sleep and awoke early to prepare the Bremen. At 5.31 in the morning, the sun rose, and with von Hunefeld and Cole at the controls, they started up the big L5 engine and pointed the Bremen down the grass strip. The sky was clear and the wind calm as they took off. An hour and a half later, they were reported over Galway and then over the Head lighthouse at 500 feet. Pretty soon they encountered overcast skies and drizzle, so descended down to 50 feet over the waves. But clear of that and in freshening winds, they climbed up to 3,000. At the three-hour mark and every three hours after that, they made a drift check. They dropped a pair of smoke bombs at a timed interval and then turned back to take readings as they passed over them, checking the wind direction and their ground speed. At 27 degrees west, they made a position check and descended back to 50 feet to avoid the freshening winds. As darkness approached, they estimated that they had reached 42 west and were encountering increasingly strong headwinds. That wasn't their only problem, however, as their path was blocked by a towering wall of black cloud reaching up to at least 20,000 feet. Worried about ice, they descended to 50 feet but the mountainous waves threatened to pluck them from the sky so they climbed up to 6,000 feet. The Yunkers was rocked and buffeted by the storm and they flew on in pitch blackness for hour after hour. Relying completely on their primitive instruments, they were forced to fly on by torchlight when the cockpit lights failed. Ice was rapidly forming on the airframe, so they gingerly descended into warmer air, and then they thought they had an oil leak. Fitzmaurice clambered around the airframe but couldn't find the source of the oil loss. Fearing an engine failure, they turned to try and find land as soon as possible and continued on in a desperate struggle with the storm and the blackness. After enduring five or six hours of this torment, they suddenly found themselves in clear air. Two more hours of westerly flight and they spotted white patches below them which they assumed were patches of fog, but after dropping a white signal flare, they discovered a snow-covered hill. Uncertain of where they had arrived, when the sun came up, they discovered a large error in their compass of nearly 40 degrees. They fought their way through a heavy blizzard until they found a lighthouse and with their fuel reserves down to two hours, they put down on a nearby frozen lake and promptly broke through the ice, damaging the Bremen and making further flight that day impossible. The lighthouse keeper of Greenlee Isle took them in and for the first time in 36 hours, they were able to rest. Receptions were held and the trio feted across Canada and the U.S. and the press dubbed him as the Crazy Baron. They were given a ticker tape parade in New York and became the very first non-Americans ever to be awarded the U.S. Army Air Corps Distinguished Flying Cross. After returning to Germany, von Hunefeld nearly lost his life to appendicitis but barely recovered he made plans to fly his other Junkers, Europa, around the world. The Swedish pilot, Carl Gunnar Lindner, joined him and their flight goes well, which is how, on September the 21st 1928, on the distant Iranian airfield of Bushir, they encountered the young aristocrat. Friedrich Karl Richard Paul August Freiherr König von zu worthausen The eldest son of Friedrich Karl Wilhelm Freiherr König von zu worthausen like his idol von Hunefeld Fritz grew up in the family castle Schloss-Worthausen with all the privileges of an aristocrat great wealth, fine schooling and the freedom to pursue his dreams. He studied law and economics at universities in Munich, Konigsberg, Berlin and England, whilst enjoying his hobbies, one of which was flying. His parents bought him his own aircraft, a Clem L-20B, which I should point out was no big Yonkers capable of transcontinental flight. The Clem was a small two-seat wooden fabric monoplane that weighed a mere 600 pounds, only 270 kilograms, which would today class it as a light sports aircraft, microlight or ultralight. It landed at 20 miles an hour, and despite only having an air-cooled Daimler-Benz flat twin, producing barely 20 horsepower, it cruised at a reasonable 65 miles an hour. Fritz was a natural pilot, though, and it only took him 12 hours of instruction to qualify for his licence. The year all this was going on, President Hindenburg of Germany donated a cup to recognise the achievements in powered flight, imaginatively called the Hindenburg Cup. When young Fritz heard about it, he was determined to become the first recipient and the first to win the 10,000-mark prize money that went along with it. By the time he set off, he'd only acquired five hours of flight in his little aircraft, which he had named Kamerad, which translates to comrade or companion in English. The only modification he made to his Clem was to increase the size of the fuel tank fourfold. He decided that a 1,000 mile flight from Berlin to Moscow would put him in the running for the cup. So at 11pm on August 9th, 1928, he took off from Berlin's Tempelhof Airport into the darkness in an aircraft with only a rev counter, vertical speed indicator and a magnetic compass to navigate by, with maps torn from his school atlas. The long flight had been fraught with danger, particularly when fatigue started to overcome him. He would fly with the aircraft trimmed nose down, so that if he fell asleep, the aircraft would start to descend and the rise in engine noise would wake him. On occasions, he would find himself having to descend through cloud, which he did, using the light from the moon or the sun to keep himself upright. Sixteen hours later, with rain whipping his face so that he could hardly see, the weather forced him to land, only 30 miles from his destination. But he knew that if he flew too long in the rain, the fabric of the Clermel L-20 would become waterlogged and lose tension. After a rest, when the weather cleared, the next morning he continued on to Moscow's Kadinka Aerodrome, where he landed safely. It seemed that he might not have done enough to win the Hindenburg Cup, so following the advice of Russia's Minister of War, General Semyon Budioni, he continued his flight through Bacau, Pashlevi, and Tehran. En route, his little aircraft was attacked by eagles, who seemed intent on bringing him down, but he managed to dive away before one hit the propeller and erect it. In Tehran, he was the guest of honour at a banquet. He flew on through Qom, Istfahan and towards Shiraz when a forced landing on a mountain precipice stranded him for a week. It took him this time to fix the problem and then, with the help of local tribesmen, to build a runway to take off from. Eventually, he reached Bushir and met his hero, Hunafel. Here he is informed that he has indeed won the Hindenburg Cup. Friedrich was inspired by the Baron and would eventually rename his little aircraft, Hunefeld, in his honour. The crazy Baron would continue east in a bid to complete his round-the-world flight, but his attempt would end in Tokyo when his poor health overcame him. He returned to Berlin and died of stomach cancer, ...early the following year. For the young Friedrich, his fabulous journey was far from done. He carried on through Karachi to Calcutta, where he met Mahatma Gandhi... ...and in Agra, he took time to view the magnificent Taj Mahal. He went on hunting trips and travels by mule into Tibet and Nepal. On his way to Bangkok, he was nearly brought down by a huge tropical thunderstorm and was delayed by the monsoons, but he met a wife of the King of Siam and was given a companion to help guide him, her rare Siamese cat. Tanim, as the kitten was named, accompanied him for the rest of his amazing journey. He flew over Penang to Singapore when he detoured to cross the equator before taking a ship to Shanghai and then back into the air to Nanking. Kobe in Japan was the next stop and then on to Tokyo before sailing to San Francisco in the United States. His adventures would continue as he flew from coast to coast, meeting celebrities and dignitaries, surviving a serious car crash and suffering the occasional flying accident as well. By the time he reached Roosevelt Field, the airfield used by Charles Lindbergh to start his crossing of the Atlantic, it was November 1930 and time to head back to Germany. He dismantled his trusty aircraft and boarded an ocean liner to sail back to Europe. He had set off 15 months earlier and covered 20,000 miles, 32,000 kilometers, in 450 hours of flying. Although his journey couldn't be recorded as a solo round-the-world flight, it was still a remarkable achievement for the young pilot. On his arrival in Berlin, he was enthusiastically received, and finally, a year late, President von Hindenburg would personally present him with the cup he so richly deserved. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about it at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you enjoy listening to Plane Tales, then you'd help us out, if you could, by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or perhaps your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.